In this lecture, we're going to look at alkenes. And we're going to look at the structure and bonding in alkenes, look at geometrical isomerism in alkenes, and then finally we'll move on to the first of their reactions, which is electrophilic addition. Let's first look at structure and bonding. When we were dealing with alkanes, we took an S orbital and three P orbitals, and we hybridized them to get our four sp3 orbitals, which would give our tetrahedral nature of our alkane. Now we come to alkenes. We want to use one of those P orbitals to make our pi bond, which we'll come to in a minute. And so we're left now with one S and two P orbitals to hybridize, to mix together, to make our sigma framework. And we will end up, therefore, with three sp2 hybridized orbitals. So each carbon then has a sigma framework with three sigma bonds. These are always in the plane, in the same plane. And in order to arrange three bonds evenly around 360 degrees in the same plane, we they obviously have 120 degree arcs between them. At right angles to that sigma framework, we then put our p orbital with its lone electron in it. And if we join two of these carbons together, we find we have all our groups in the same plane. And we have our two p orbitals that are going to overlap, one electron in each on either of the two carbons. Now, as we've done in the past, we're going to mix these two orbitals. We've got two atomic orbitals to mix. We're therefore going to produce two molecular orbitals, two new orbitals. And if we look at the energy diagram, as we've done in the past, what we see is this. Now we have two p orbitals, which are either very close in energy or identical. If the groups on either end of the alkene are the same, then those two p orbitals must be identical. If they are similar, then the p orbitals must be very similar in energy. And as I said before, the overlap that you get by mixing orbitals of similar energy is maximized. You get the best overlap from orbitals which have the same energy or similar energy. And so we will produce one orbital down here, one new orbital, quite low in energy down here by mixing these two, and one of high energy, approximately the same energy upwards, up there. We have two electrons to put in, one from each atomic p orbital. They go into the bottom orbital, which is called the pi orbital. And this orbital is a bonding orbital, and we'll see why in a second. The top orbital, which doesn't have any electrons in it at the moment, and won't do in general, this orbital is called the pi star orbital, and is called an antibonding orbital. Now, why do we call them bonding and antibonding? Well, to do that, we need to look at the rough shapes of these orbitals. In the pi orbital, the two p orbitals have overlapped, so we generate two sausage-like orbitals, one above the plane of the internuclear axis of the carbon-carbon single bond, and one below it. And the electrons in that orbital are concentrated between the two nuclei, are therefore bonding, helping to bond the electron, the uh, carbons together. And that's why it's called a bonding orbital. In the other one, the lobes of the antibonding orbital are pointing away from the two carbons. There are four lobes pointing out, away from the internuclear axis, and they tend to antibond. They tend to break the bond, any bond that would be there. And that's why it's called an antibonding orbital. So we see that a double bond actually consists of two types of bond. It consists of a sigma bond, which has two sp3 orbitals pointing towards one another, 
like that and overlapping very effectively because they spatially they're pointing right next right towards one another and a pi bond which has two orbitals lined up parallel to one another and overlapping sideways now the overlap of a bond of orbitals pointing towards one another is always much greater than the overlap of bonds of orbitals which are side side by side and therefore the energy of the single bond the sigma bond is higher than that of the pi bond. It's 350 kilojoules per mole as opposed to 270 kilojoules per mole. Overall, of course, the double bond has 350 plus 270, a large amount of energy, much greater than a single bond. But the pi component is slightly weaker than the sigma component. Now, the presence of that pi component has two important consequences. The first is this. That whereas in alkanes we saw we could rotate about single bonds. And now we know why we can do that, because as we do that, the sigma orbitals do not break. We can rotate about those sigma orbitals quite easily. They remain in contact during this rotation. Rotation can occur readily without any loss of energy of forming the bond in the first place. But if we take an alkene and we rotate about that central sig single bond, we must break the pi bond because the pi bond is above and below the internuclear axis. And as we rotate, you can view it, if you like, from the view of the two original atomic orbitals. If they rotate to the right angles to one another, as I already said that orbitals at right angles to one another do not overlap, then they will not overlap, will not form a bond. So rotation about a double bond will actually break the pi bond and we will lose 270 kilojoules per mole of energy. Obviously, we don't want to do that. And therefore, it doesn't occur. Rotation does not occur about that pi bond. That means that if we have different substituents on either end of the alkene, because the rotation doesn't occur and equilibrate, as we saw with conformers, we can actually isolate these two compounds as separate compounds. This, because it's a spatial orientation of groups, <coughs> is called geometrical isomerism, and these are geometrical isomers. For example, in this pair, we have two methyl groups on one side of the double bond and two ethyl groups on the other, whereas in this comp, the other half of this pair, we have a methyl and ethyl on one side and an ethyl and a methyl on the other. Where we have light groups, two methyls and two ethyls on the same side of the double bond, this is called a cis isomer, or the cis isomer. Where the light groups are on opposite sides of the double bond, this is known as the trans isomer. And cis and trans have been used to name these compounds for many, many years. Now the trouble with this nomenclature is that it doesn't always work out when you have groups either end of the double bond which are not like. Let's take these two molecules. Here we have methyl and ethyl at one end of the double bond and the chlorine and bromine at the other end of the double bond. And again, we can have two geometrical isomers. Now, can we say a chlorine is like a methyl or bromine is like a methyl? We can't. We can't relate like to like. So we can't use the cis-trans nomenclature for this. And there was a means, this is where we introduced the ZE nomenclature. And in order to decide whether a compound is a Z, isomer or an E isomer, and I'll explain where these terms come from in a minute, we have to 
determine an order of priority of the groups on either end of the double bond. Now the order of priority is first and foremost decided by the atomic number of the element directly attached to the carbon of the double bond. And the higher the atomic number, then the higher is the priority of that element. So if we look at the chlorine and bromine end, bromine has a tight atomic number, so it has priority one, and chlorine, which is a lower atomic number, has priority two. And let's look at the other end, where we'll look, compare a methyl and an ethyl group. In both cases, the element directly attached to the carbon that I want is a carbon. The methyl of the methyl group, or rather the carbon of the methyl group, and the carbon of the methylene of the ethyl group. When that occurs, what we need to do is to move out along the chain and look for the next element of higher atomic number. If we do that on methyl, we go from the carbon, the next element is a hydrogen, hydrogens of the methyl group. With the ethyl group, we move out, we go from a carbon of the methylene group to a carbon of the methyl group. And carbon has a higher atomic number than hydrogen, and so the ethyl group has, has a, a priority of one, and the methyl group has a priority of two. Now, in this molecule, where the two <coughs> groups of highest priority are on the same face, could be called the cis, but in t the people who devise this thought, well, if we're going to have a new system, we might also have a new system anometer as well, and is actually called the Z isomer. The Z comes from the German word zusammen, meaning together. The other isomer, where the two groups of highest priority, or the two groups of lowest priority, pair, groups of similar priority, are on opposite sides of the double bond, is known as the E isomer, and that comes from the German word entgegen, meaning opposite. So we see the first consequence of this existence of this double bond is that we end up with no rotation about the double bond, and we get geometrical isomers, and we have to introduce this new nomenclature when we have uh, compounds of a certain type. The, sec the second consequence of the existence of that pi bond is that those electrons are further removed from the carbon nuclei than are ones in a sigma bond. They are not on the internuclear axis, they are above and below the internuclear axis. And they are therefore more readily available for attack. Indeed, that leads on to the first of our reactions of alkenes, which is electrophilic addition. That is, an electrophile is something which seeks out electrons and we have a pair of electrons in our pi bond, and therefore alkenes are going to be red, very readily susceptible to electrophilic addition. The general equation is this. We have a double bond. We have EX. EX is a generalized representation of any electrophile. E represents the electrophilic part. X represents what is known as the anionic or the nucleophilic part. We'll see what we mean by that we look at the mechanism. And this, these add on to the double bond and we end up with a saturated species with E, carbon E bonds and carbon X bonds. Before we look at the mechanism, let's just look at the scope. And you'll see that on this handout. And we can see we can add a wide range of electrophiles. The reaction is wide ranging and do all sorts of things uh, in, in this reaction. We can use protons as electrophiles. We can add HBr, HCl, or we can add H2SO4. We can add acids to a double bond. If we ionize an alkyl chlorine bond by treating it with aluminum chloride and generating formally a carbocation, R+, we can also add 
alkyl chlorides to double bonds. You can't do that in the absence of aluminum chloride. Alkyl chlorides and alkenes not react without the aluminum chloride there. You can use nitrogen electrophiles. Nitrosyl chloride, NOCl, is a classic case. It used to be used in the old days for the identification of alkenes and making crystalline products. The NOCl product is very often a crystalline derivative and it used to, used to be used for making crystalline derivatives of alkenes before spectroscopy came along. The halogens themselves are, of course, very good electrophiles. I haven't included fluorine, but it will add, but you have to be very careful because it's very reactive, so I've left it out off for the moment, but chlorine, bromine, and iodine do react very well with alkenes. Iodine perhaps not quite as well as the other two, but nevertheless, they do react well. Iodine monochloride reacts very well. And finally, we can use other electrophiles, and a good one which reacts very well with double bonds is mercuric acetate. Mercury has a quite high affinity for attack on mercury salts, have a high affinity for attack on double bonds. Now, what I want you to look at this table specifically, um, specially, is the right-hand column, because you see it is headed by the term stereospecific question mark, and you'll see that down that column there are no, 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 and then right where we deal with bromine and iodine monochloride, there are two yeses. Now, remember when I was right at the very beginning of this lecture series, I said that stereochemistry was going to be used to distinguish some mechanisms. <coughs> Stereospecific, which I'm going to define in a minute, is obviously something to do with stereochemistry. And the fact that in all these cases, bar those two, we have the reaction is not stereospecific, and here it is stereospecific, it means that the stereochemistry is different for those two compared to the others, which suggests that the mechanism for those two is different. So let's now look at the mechanisms. There are, in fact, two mechanisms, depending on whether they are stereospecific or not stereospecific. Now, if we take uh, a general electrophile, HX, let's say, or EX, let's say EX, one HX, EX, that EX may be ionized, as in hydrogen halides, HX, or it could be a covalent bond, as in nitrosyl chloride or possibly mercuric acetate, and we will have slightly different mechanisms um, for those, but eventually they go through what we'll see in the same. What can happen is the double bond attacks the electrophile, the ionic electrophile, if it's, a, say, a proton or whatever, to give this intermediate carbocation, or it can attack the covalent compound and kick out the Y minus part of the electrophile. And again, we end up with the same intermediate, a carbocation with Y minus. The Y minus then attacks that carbocation to give the final product. Now, it's important to distinguish here between the two steps. The second step is very rapid. It's an anionic rushing into a cation. It's an electrostatic reaction, if you like. It's a fast reaction in both cases. The first step, the reaction of the alkene with uh, a proton, let's say, or with an, a covalent electrophile, is the slow step. It's a step which takes time. We've got to break that 270 kilojoules per mole of energy to do that step. So that's a slow step. And we call that the rate-determining step because it determines the rate for the whole set of reactions, the two reactions, the whole, whole electrophilic addition is determined by that step. Now let's look at the bromine addition. What happens here is slightly different. This is the second mechanism. 
The bromine adds not to give a free carbocation as we had there, but to give this cyclic species in which the charge is not on the carbon, but is on the bromine. That is called a bromonium ion, and if it were iodine, it would be an iodonium ion. This then suffers attack by the Y minus, or in this case, Br minus, to give the product of addition of bromide, bromine. Again, we have the same situation. The first step is the slow step, because we're breaking the pi bond. The second step is relatively rapid. And so we can actually designate this reaction, as we do, for example, with SN1 and SN2, which some of you I know have done at A-level. We can give a designation to this reaction, which is uh, similar to that. The reaction is an addition, so we write AD. It is an electrophilic, so we put a subscript, subscript E. And it is bimolecular because in the rate determined step, it involves the alkene and the electrophile, so it is two. So in both cases, both of these mechanisms are called an ADE2 mechanism. And what we need to do now, and what we'll do in the next lecture, is to decide why they differ in steric chemistry. So what we've seen in this lecture is we've looked at the structure and bonding in alkenes. We've seen how the sigma framework is formed. We've seen how the pi bond is formed, and we generate a pi star bond, which we won't talk about again for a while. We've seen how this zigzagsis pi bond restricts rotation and creates geometrical isomers. And we've now seen that it actually causes the first of our reactions of alkenes, that is, electrophilic addition.